Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement Author in the Room conference call. My name is Shannon and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star, then zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Schutt. Dr. Schutt is the Medical Director and Senior Consultant for Greenfield Health Systems in Portland. Greenfield is an innovative medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and spread of best practices through advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Shute served as the Medical Director of Acumentra Health, the Organ Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Shute was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Shute, you may go ahead. Great. Thank you. Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. David Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in recent JAMA articles, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with our next call being February 21st. The article for that call will be The Rational Clinical Exam, Will My Patient Fall, uh, published by Dr. David Gantz. Please join us. Many organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today our featured author is Dr. Dennis Black, first author of the uh, article titled, Effects of Continuing or Stopping Alendronate After Five Years of Treatment, the Fracture Intervention Trial Long-Term Extension, or FLEX, a randomized trial, published in the December 27, 2006 issue of JAMA. Uh, Dr. Dennis Black has been professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of California at San Francisco since 1987. He has a doctorate in biostatistics from the University of Cal Berkeley. Dr. Black has a strong interest in osteoporosis and clinical trials. He has helped design and manage several large osteoporosis studies, including the study of osteoporotic fractures, or SOF, the fracture intervention trial of alendronate, or FIT, the Moore trial of raloxifene, and the Horizon fracture trial of zolendronic acid. He also is the principal investigator for the NIH-funded PTH and alendronate, or PATH trial. He was a principal investigator in the FIT long-term extension trial. Uh, Dr. Black, welcome, and please proceed. Great. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, I'd just like to start by thanking JAMA and IHI for this wonderful opportunity to discuss the results of the study. Um, let, me, let me take a few minutes to start out with a little bit of background um, about osteoporosis and treatment. Um, fractures, of course, are a significant cause of disability, morbidity, and health care in the U.S. and internationally. Um, women, particularly elderly women, are at highest risk, but risk extends to other groups as well. Overall, just to give you some statistics, overall a 50-year-old Caucasian woman has about a 50% lifetime risk of at least one osteoporotic fracture. 
Um, the annual cost of osteoporosis in the U.S. are estimated to be over $18 billion. Now, in terms of therapy, we've made, of course, huge strides over the last 10 years. Alendronate, the first bisphosphonate to be approved in the U.S., was originally approved in 1996, and it's widely used. Since then, um, two other bisphosphonates, residronate and abandronate, have become available, and they're widely used as well. All three have sh been shown to reduce vertebral fractures, and alendronate and residronate have been shown to reduce non-vertebral fractures, especially in women osteoporotic by bone density or with existing vertebral fractures. These drugs are used by millions of patients in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, in terms of alendronate, the key trial supporting fracture reductions was the fracture intervention trial, or FIT, which was conducted between 92 and 97. However, FIT, as well as other fracture trials of bisphosphonates, continued for only three to four years. And while it's clear that bisphosphonates can reduce fracture risk over that period of time, three to four years, clinicians really have limited guidance as to what to do beyond that time. Um, now, you might think the decision would be very straightforward. Um, in preventative medicine in general, many treatments, for example, statins, antihypertensives, are generally continued lifelong. Um, however, with bisphosphonates, there's been concern that treating long-term and reducing bone turnover long-term may eventually decrease bone strength and increase fracture risk. So thus, physicians are kind of left in a quandary as to whether bisphosphonates should be continued beyond five years. Now, to address this question of the long-term use of alendronate, we designed and carried out the FIT long-term extension, or FLEX trial, which was reported in this paper in JAMA. This trial was designed to study the impact of continuing versus stopping alendronate after three to five years of previous alendronate therapy. Now, to get to talk a little more about the trial, the trial was begun after FIT ended and recruited women who had been randomized to alendronate and FIT. So they were all taking active alendronate and FIT. To be eligible for FLEX, they had to have used alendronate for at least three years during or after FIT. If eligible for FLEX, they were randomized to receive either five years of alendronate or to receive blinded placebo for five years. Of the women randomized to continue to lendronate, half of them were given 10 milligrams per day and the other half 5 milligrams per day. Um, a total of 1,099 women were randomized, um, and at flex baseline, on average, they had five years of previous lendronate use, and 80% of them were still currently using lendronate. Um, at the beginning of flex, their average age was 73. Um, in terms of endpoints for the study, the primary endpoint was bone mineral density, a BMD change at the total hip. Secondary endpoints included BMD at the spine, other hip sites, the radius, and total body. Um, other secondary endpoints included biochemical markers of bone turnover and safety parameters. Uh, fractures were, inclu were included, assessed, and confirmed, but these were only an exploratory endpoint. Types of fractures assessed included radiographically defined vertebral fractures, symptomatic vertebral fractures, and non-vertebral fractures. Also, uh, we did a small study where we collected bone biopsies on a small sample of volunteers at the end of the study. 
Okay, that's a quick summary of the study design. Now let's go on and briefly talk about the study results. As I said, um, total hip BMD was the main study endpoint. During FIT, total hip BMD had increased, and for those who continued on alendronate in flex, that increase was sustained. Those who discontinued alendronate in flex showed a small but a relatively modest decrease in bone density, so that at the end of flex, after five years, there was a 2.4% difference between those who remained on alendronate and those who discontinued. The results for other BMD sites at the hip and the spine um, were similar. Those who discontinued had lower bone density after five years, but these differences were relatively modest, generally 2 to 4% lower than those who continued. It's also worth noting that in terms of bone density at the hip and the spine, there were no differences seen between the, the women on a lendronate 5 milligrams a day and those on a lendronate 10 milligrams a day. One of the secondary endpoints uh, was biochemical markers of bone metabolism. Now, as you probably know, um, bone remodeling rates go up at menopause in general and are returned to premenopausal levels with bisphosphonate therapy. In FLEX, among those who continued on alendronate, remodeling rates remained lowered. However, among those who discontinued, marker levels began to rise. Now, these rises were relatively gradual, and even at the end of five years, they were approaching but had not yet reached pretreatment levels. Again, as with BMD, there was no difference between the 5 and 10 milligram doses. Now, going on to fractures, fractures were only an exploratory endpoint, but the results are still quite interesting. For non-spine fractures, there was no difference over five years in those who continued alendronate compared to the, those who discontinued. Um, similarly, for the radiographically defined spine fractures, there was no significant difference between those who continued and those who discontinued alendronate. However, for the more severe symptomatic spine fractures, the rate was significantly higher in those women who discontinued, about 5.3% over the five years in those who discontinued compared to about 2.5% in those who continued. This amounted to a 55% reduction among those, a 55% reduction, which was statistically significantly different between the two groups. Now, turning to overall general safety, um, there was no difference in adverse experiences between groups, including upper GI events. Um, no cases of osteonecrosis of the jaw were seen in the study at all. Bone biopsies um, were obtained in 18 women. Um, while these numbers are very small, all samples show dual label, suggesting the bone remodeling was continuing, even among those who had used alendronate. For, for the entire 10-year period. Now, to summarize our findings in FLEX, for bone density, continued alendronate over five years resulted in maintenance of BMD increases. While those who discontinued had declines, these declines were modest, only about 2 to 4% over the five years. Summarizing bone turnover, discontinuation led to gradual increases that after five years were beginning to approach pretreatment levels. Non-spine fractures were similar in the two groups, 
as were radiographically defined for tibial fractures. However, symptomatic spine fractures, while relatively uncommon, were reduced among those who continued compared to those who discontinued. In general, for both the fracture results and the bone biopsy results, there was no evidence of a compromise in bone quality with long-term alendronate therapy up to 10 years. Now, before we talk about what conclusions we can draw from the study, let me, let me point out a couple of important limitations. Um, firstly, the women had used alendronate for an average of five years at the start, and therefore clinicians need to be cautious about generalizing to shorter periods of previous alendronate use. Um, a second limitation is that, again, fractures were an exploratory endpoint with relatively low power. And if you read the paper, the wide confidence intervals for the fracture reductions reflect this relatively low power. But keeping in mind these limitations, what could we conclude from FIT? And what clinical recommendations can be made? I think most important um, is the conclusion that long-term alendronate therapy up to 10 years is generally safe and did not show any evidence of a compromise in bone quality or a decrease in bone strength. Discontinuation after five years of alendronate for up to five years resulted in modest bone loss. However, it may not substantially increase fracture risk for many women, and therefore many patients may decide to discontinue alendronate for up to a five-year holiday. On the other hand, women at very high risk of clinical spine fractures may benefit from continuing alendronate. High-risk women may include patients with recent or severe spine fracture, or those with a very low BMD. Okay, now I'd like to just to end by acknowledging um, my colleagues here at UCSF at the 10 clinical sites and at the sponsor Merck, who worked closely together as a team on the study for over 10 years, a fairly extraordinary uh, long period of time. And I'd also like to thank the participants in FIT and FLEX for their extraordinary devotion to this study, with many of them participating and taking daily alendronate for as long as 10 years. Okay, with that, I'd like to thank you for listening, and after the moderator comes back on, I'd look forward to some interesting discussion and some questions. Thank you very much. Well, great. Thank you, Dr. Black, and thank you for that wonderful work, both addressing what I think is a very germane clinical question and for presenting it so clearly to us. I want to take just a minute now and tell you about how the rest of the call will, will go. Uh, I will take about five minutes discussing with Dr. Black about the implications for clinical practices and how we can begin to think about putting his research into practice. I want to, to, to stress after that how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which you get both clarification on anything published in the article itself by talking directly with the lead author and the complicated contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards improving care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but in offering up your experience and your opinions in this area will be very helpful to the call. There are approximately 80 phone lines connected to the call today. Generally, many of them have several individuals participating per line. Some of the members of the media may be present today on today's call as well on a background basis only. 
Uh, one other note is just to, again, let you know that this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming audio or as podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Uh, prior author in the room calls are also available on those sites as well. As well. Now, let's go ahead and turn again to what the research suggests about changes we might want to make in the clinical practice. Clearly, Dr. Black, I think your work uh, says we have a choice in what we do after 10 years of treatment. Uh, clearly, you've recommended that women at high risk for fractures uh, probably uh, there's a good argument for continuing them. Uh, on treatment, then again, your research also shows that it may be uh, perfectly safe to have a drug holiday uh, for up to five years. This really presents us with a choice, both as clinicians and presents our patients with a choice. And I think that really presents some challenges in terms of how we organize our practice and how we advise patients. Uh, do you have any suggestions specifically in, in how you would advise a clinician to use this information, both in terms of advising their patients or in terms of perhaps risk stratifying who we continue to treat with Alendronate and who we take off the medication? Yeah, that, that, that's, of course, an, an excellent question, and it's sort of the $64,000 question here um, is to try to identify the patients who should be continued versus those who could safely take a drug holiday. And we, we as the authors kind of struggled with this issue, did a lot of data analysis to try and identify that. Um, I think the, the spine fracture results um, suggest that women at, at high risk of spine fracture in particular are certainly um, those who should be continued. Um, that would include, say, um, a woman who's had a recent spine fracture, maybe while on treatment, has a history of multiple spine fractures. Um, you know, or, or very low bone density, say, you know, but certainly below minus 3 or by, below minus 3.5. Mm -hmm. um, those women are very high risk of, of spine fractures. So at that extreme, I think that decision would be fairly straightforward. Um, on the other side, um, if you take a woman, say, who started treatment with bone density of minus 2 without any previous spine fractures, now after five years of treatment, has come up to maybe a T-score of minus 1.5, and she just wants to discontinue for a while, I would feel quite comfortable you know, discontinuing her, realizing that um, she's probably not going to have a, you know, a large increase in risk, at least over the next five years. So I think you know, for those two groups, in, the, in kind of the extreme ends, it's fairly straightforward. I think in the middle, um, it's important that a clinician would just kind of look at the risk factors, certainly look at the individual patient and, and her willingness uh, to continue and not. I think one of the, the really comforting things about the study is in showing the lack of concern about a decrease in bone strength, um, this suggests that you sort of can't go wrong by continuing. So it, it does make the decision a little bit less consequential from that point of view. Great. Thank you, Dr. Black. And it sounds like from your comments that clearly in, in practice we need to have systems in place that are effective both at uh, uh, tracking bone mineral density over time with treatment and also keeping track of any clinical vertebral fractures that may occur. Well, thank you. At this time, I'd like to go ahead and open uh, the lines for questions. Uh, can you go ahead and tell us our procedure for questions, please? If you have a question, press 
zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may each ask your question. So again, that's zero, one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero, then the two key. There will be one moment for questions. Great. And as you ask questions, your questions can certainly include uh, information, uh, questions on how to use the information to make improvements. Uh, and again, please feel free to share examples of what you may have already done uh, with this knowledge or what you're planning to do with it or changes uh, that you're contemplating. Our first question comes from Norman Charney with Healthcare for the 21st Century. Please go ahead. Hello. Uh, my question is, uh, there, there was nothing in the study that indicated what physical fitness and the nutrition had, if anything, to do with the outcome. In other words, uh, we had a variety of people, and we don't know how physically fit they were. They were. I, we don't know whether they were taking appropriate amounts of calcium and vitamins, and we don't know whether that had any effect on the outcome. Right. Um, we, we have some information. Um, we do, as part of the protocol, I didn't mention it, um, but the women were given uh, 500 milligrams of calcium and 250 IU of vitamin D. You know, those are fairly low doses, um, of course, of both of those, um, lower than the rec recommendations. <laughs> so we know at least they were getting some. Um, in terms of, you know, physical fitness, in general, of course, they're on average 73 years old, but they, they were women who elected to continue for another five years after they were in fit. So like all these clinical trials, I think you can assume that the women were, were fairly healthy, at least when they started the trial. Um, we do have some information um, in the study about the physical activity during the trial and um, strength at the beginning of the trial. We haven't analyzed that yet, but we will we'll be looking at that. Um, and that probably does play play some role in, in, in obviously, their um, ability to maintain BMD and, and their ability to avoid fractures. Would you say also, Dr. Black, that these were fairly motivated patients uh, based on their uh, deciding to enroll and fit in the first place and then to go ahead and extend? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, again, yeah, I think that's a, a good point. They're very motivated patients. Um, not only did they participate in a clinical trial for three to four years to begin with, um, they were willing to sign up for another another five years and, and to take, and keep in mind this is daily alendronate that was used in the trial, not the weekly alendronate, which is now generally used in clinical practice. So, so I think they are very motivated patients. And, and again, I think like most clinical trials, in that sense, clinicians need to keep in mind, you know, how these results may translate to clinical practice and, and sort of get moder moderate their generalization by that knowledge. Great. Thank you. Any other questions, sir? There, there are no more questions in queue. Oh, great. Okay. Well, that raises an issue, uh, Dr. Black. When you talked about the the, the uh, study was done with daily alendronate as opposed to weekly alendronate as is used in clinical practice. Can you comment at all about the generalizability of uh, your findings to what's currently being done in clinical practice? Well, yeah, there's, there's sort of a, a, a question of a, a little bit of a leap of faith from daily bisphosphonates um, to weekly bisphosphonates. Um, the, the studies that were done to show the equivalence basically showed that in terms of 
bone markers, daily uh, a daily bisphosphonates were similar to a comparable dose given weekly, and in terms of bone density change over a year, they, they were similar. Um, so for everything we could measure that we would think would affect fracture risk would be similar between daily and weekly versions of, of say, alendronate or residronate. Um, and so I think, I think the results would be generalizable in that sense, yeah. Great. Okay. And um, again, do you think they're generalizable across other bisphosphonates as well? Yeah, that, that's, that's an important question, um, whether they can be generalized to the two other oral bisphosphonates that are currently approved. Um, there, are, there aren't the same kind of complete data for either residronate and certainly not for abandronate um, in particular. Um, I think there are good data. I would think that it's very likely that continuing abandronate or continuing residronate would maintain BMD and maintain the decrease in markers. And I think the long-term safety that we showed with alendronate is probably generalizable to those. Um, on the other hand, I think what we showed about the residual effect of discontinuing alendronate may not necessarily be generalizable to the other bisphosphonates. There, there just isn't real good data about what happens after, say, using residronate for five years and then discontinuing it. There is some data um, after shorter-term use suggesting that the residual effect of residronate may be a little bit less uh, than alendronate, but we don't, we don't really know. And as far as I know, there's no data specifically about abandronate. Um, I think, though, it's important to put it into a little bit of context, um, say, for example, compared to hormone therapy, um, HRT, that, that after hormone therapy, there's a precipitous drop in bone mineral density. And clearly, the bisphosphonates of the class are quite different in at least maintaining some level of residual effect after therapy is stopped. But whether that residual effect is similar for a residronate and abandronate, as we showed for alendronate, is really not known. Great. Well, thank you for that clarification. Are there any more questions in the queue at this time? There are not. As a reminder, it is zero and one to ask the question. Great. Thank you. You know, one of the things that clearly I think comes to mind is uh, patients do have a choice between two very legitimate options, uh, whether to continue alendronate beyond five years or to go ahead and stop it. And I think as clinicians, that puts uh, a certain responsibility on us to be able to actually uh, effectively educate our patients about the choice so they can make a good informed consent. Uh, Dr. Black, do you have any thoughts about how we best do that uh, and how we would systematize that into our practice? Um, well, yeah, I, again, I think the, the important result here is that the decision, um, again, for some for some women, um, especially those very high risk of spine fracture, would be very straightforward, and it would suggest that those women should continue um, if, if they're very high risk of spine fracture. On the other hand, for uh, the women who are not at high risk of spine fracture, I think it would be important for them to understand that the data show that there is probably some residual level of protection that's available after the drug is discontinued if they've used it for five years previously. And uh, for them to understand that therefore they, they do have a choice. And if they're comfortable 
continuing to take their probably weekly um, alendronate, then, then they can continue, and there's no data suggesting that it will, will certainly harm them. Um, so that would be fine. If, on the other hand, they are taking five or six or ten other medications, it would probably be okay for these women that had lower risk to be able to discontinue to take a drug holiday for a few years and then to reassess um, about possibly uh, starting up again later. Wonderful. And in those women who choose to discontinue therapy, how would you recommend following them over that five-year drug holiday? Uh, yeah, probably, I mean, in the ideal world, and hopefully we're, we're continuing to analyze this data, and we, we probably will have some more details about that. Um, in the ideal world, we could use biochemical markers, because biochemical markers have large changes. You see generally, you know, you can see 40, 50 percent declines when you begin treatment. So you see larger changes. Um, at the moment, though, the um, markers have not really been, you know, validated and tested well enough, I think, for clinical practice. So I think we're left with probably monitoring uh, via bone mineral density. And, you know, this is a bit of a tricky area, but I think, um, you know, what I would probably suggest is measuring bone density on a person when they discontinue therapy at the time they discontinue, and then repeating it perhaps in two years, um, being very, very careful to repeat it using the same machine, if possible, and, and using the same software, because the changes in software on the DEXA machines or uh, changes in machines can lead to systematic changes. So if you use the same machine and then, and then to kind of monitor the change, and I guess if you're, if you're starting to see large declines, um, you know, three, four, five percent declines in bone density, and if the bone density is getting to a point which is, you know, fairly low in terms of T-scores, I think that would be kind of a clue to begin to think about reinitiating treatment. Um, as a general rule, I would also be cautious about discontinuing beyond five years um, because we, you know, our study only continued for five years. By the end of five years, on average, the markers were starting to return to pretreatment levels. So without additional knowledge, I, I would probably assume that the risk is beginning to rise after five-year holiday. So I would start to really get serious about reinstituting therapy after five years. So it really does sound like this is a kind of drug that um, we could use uh, off and on in uh, women with a long, long life expectancy uh, in, the, in the period of numbers of years, uh, but that it's not the kind of thing you would do once for a five-year period and then be done. That, that's what I would, uh, I would say from the study, yeah. Ah, wonderful. Maybe we don't, luckily, hopefully someday we'll have data for longer-term periods on and off. I'm not sure, but maybe there'll be some clinical observational data to guide this decision a little bit better. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Are there any questions in the queue at this time? There are no questions in the queue. Oh, great. All right, well, I do have another question, Dr. Black, and, and that is, you know, in your study, uh, there was a significant difference in clinical spine fractures, but yet no significant differences either in uh, non-spine fractures or uh, radiographic spine fractures. Uh, can you, do you have any insight into why that may be? Well, the, um, the mystery uh, the, or the, the unusual finding here is that there was a difference in the results for the, the radiographic spine fractures and the symptomatic spine fractures. So we actually did a fair amount of data analysis 
and we actually did some reassessment of some of the radiographs just to confirm and validate our findings, and those explorations did validate uh, the findings. Um, one important thing to keep in mind is that the symptomatic spine fractures are in general a subset, about a third of the radiographic fractures. Um, almost all the clinical ones um, were also radiographic ones. Um, so they, they tend to be the more severe of the radiographic ones. Um, I think there are two possible uh, things going on here. One is that, in fact, continuing therapy is more effective for preventing more severe spine fractures. And there is some evidence supporting that both in FIT and in some of the other bisphosphonate studies where multiple uh, vertebral fractures were reduced by something like 70 to 90% on active drug compared to placebo. So that's one explanation. Another possibility is that both types of vertebral fractures were reduced, you know, were both reduced, but we just didn't have enough power to show it. And in fact, if you look at the confidence interval for the two types of vertebral fractures, you'll see that there's a large overlap. So the truth may be that there is a, you know, a reduction somewhere between the 55% that we observed for the clinical spine fractures and the 14% non-significant reduction we observed for the radiographic fractures. And truth is somewhere in the middle. But I think from a clinical point of view, it's probably reasonable to assume that spine fractures on some level would be reduced by continued therapy and a woman at high risk of spine fracture should be continued. Just to say a word about the non-vertebral fractures, um, this has been an interesting issue and it has been a source of a fair amount of discrepancy in the bisphosphonate literature in general. Some studies of bisphosphonate show decreases in non-vertebral fractures, some don't. Um, and in general, I think it's fair to say that across the board, there have been larger reductions shown in non-vertebral fractures among women with more severe osteoporosis. Um, and so in this study, by the time they got into flex, um, they didn't have, in general, they didn't, the, the severity of the disease was less. And some of them, those with most severe disease were actually excluded or chose not to participate. So that may be one explanation for the lack of effect of non-vertebral fractures. But once again, we should keep in mind that the confidence intervals are wide and include the possibility of, of a benefit, I think about as much as 30% benefit or even possibly harm as much as 20%. So it's a fairly wide confidence interval. Great. Thank you, Dr. Black. You know, and, and as I think about um, the, the clinical management of these patients, it becomes clear to me that I think in our clinical practice we need to have a way of not only identifying women at risk, uh, that is, candidates initially for treatment, but an effective way to track these patients over time, uh, to know how long they've been treated and to know when five years is up so the question can at least be asked or addressed uh, about continuation versus discontinuation. I'd like to ask a question of our callers now. Uh, do any of you, either in your clinical practice or in your healthcare systems, use a methodology for tracking uh, your uh, women with osteoporosis or osteopenia uh, and any kind of a system to uh, track both their bone mineral densities and or the incidence of clinical vertebral fractures? So if anybody in our audience has some experience doing that, we'd love to have you call in uh, and let us know how you've been doing that. Are there any calls in the queue at this time? 
There is one question from Beth Lang with Gersko Associates. Beth, please go ahead. Great. Thank you, Beth. Hello, Beth. Beth, are you there? Looks like we've lost Beth. Uh, if you want to call back, hello? Uh, Beth, if you want to go ahead and call back in, we'd be happy to take your question. Uh, and then, Dr. Block, I guess the other question I'd invite you to respond to is, what do you think some of the areas are for future research in this field in terms of informing our clinical practice of how to optimize uh, treatment of these patients? Well, I think there, there's a, a lot of different areas of, of investigation, a lot of directions that, that people are going in osteoporosis research. Um, one general direction with bisphosphonates has been a move toward less frequent administration. I talked about the daily versus weekly, and now weekly is certainly the standard. Um, one of the oral bisphosphonates also has a monthly formulation, and there is now IV formulations that are being tested of different bisphosphonates at three months and at one, even one year. So that's certainly one, one direction, and I think as, that, as those studies become available, um, there are certain groups of patients in whom, say, an IV every three months or once a year may be an ideal way to um, optimize uh, adherence. That's one area. I think another really interesting area, and one that, that our group has been very active in, is looking at somehow combining anabolic therapy. At the moment, we have one anabolic agent, a parathyroid hormone, 1 to 34, teriparatide, available, um, combining uh, Anabolic therapy, which is, requires now a daily injection um, and is fairly expensive, with anti-resorptive therapy in some optimal way. I think there are a number of people interested in figuring out whether, say, a short course of anabolic therapy, say two or three months, could build up bone followed by anti-resorptive therapy to kind of cement those gains in bone. But I think that's another area. And then there, there is a lot of work being done on, on sort of you know, more exotic therapies, biologic uh, things as well. So I think there are a lot of, a lot of new, um, new potential areas. One of the, the things that I think is worth mentioning um, is that alendronate will, will become a generic drug, I think, sometime in 2008. Um, and that's happened already in Europe. And with that change, uh, we would expect a sort of dramatic decrease in the cost. So I think from a clinical point of view, um, the cost issue will become less of an issue, so it'll become sort of incumbent on physicians to to really de, you know make a decision again not based on the expense of the therapy, but whether or not those patients will really benefit from it. Well, thank you. That's a great point, and I do know that's a concern certainly of many of our patients, and certainly a concern of many clinicians is the cost of therapy, uh, particularly since this is such a long-term therapy. Uh, I'm delighted to hear that a gen generic option uh, will be available in the near future. Um, are there any questions in the queue at this time? We do have a question from Beth Lang with First Post Associates. Beth, please go ahead. Uh, Beth, you may have your phone on mute. Uh, Beth, are you there? I'm here. I'm asking a question. Okay, we can hear you now. Go ahead, Beth. Uh, Beth, we lost you again. Uh, check and see if your phone is on mute. Are you there? Well, let me go ahead, Beth, while you try to figure out technical problems on, on your end. Uh, just 
check back in again with Dr. Black. Um, is there any, any sort of thoughts that you have about um, how we approach this on a population basis? When we look at the performance of the system, whether it's either an individual clinical practice, whether it's a multi-specialty group, whether it's a larger health system like Kaiser or something like that, um, how should we begin to think about the performance of the system? How should we begin to measure our own clinical quality in terms of both uh, treating these patients and then the periodic reassessment uh, to decide where to go forward next? Any thoughts on that on a population basis? On a population basis, I, I, well, I think from a sort of a practice point of view, I think there are probably certain clinical practices that, that are common to a number of different clinical guidelines. For example, um, measuring bone mineral density in a 65-year-old or older women, women is, is recommended by the National Osteoporosis Foundation and, and certainly other groups support that as well. So I think one, one thing that could be assessed, for example, would be um, the proportion of women in a practice on whom a bone mineral density has been done say, over some period of time. And then following on on that, um, based on the results of that bone mineral density measurement, how many women um, have been prescribed some kind of therapy if, if it's required. And again, I think, you know, there, while there's some disagreement around the margins for what level of bone density should be treated, there is certainly a level below which everyone would agree that person should be treated, a 65-year-old woman with a BMDT score below minus 2.5 probably should be treated. So that, that could certainly be evaluated. Um, I think another level of evaluation could be the persistence of treatment. Um, among people who have been prescribed uh, bisphosphonates or other therapies for osteoporosis, how many of them are using them after a year? How many of them are using them after two years? Um, because that's, that's been a sort of an ongoing problem. So I think those are kind of uh, measures that, that you could use on a, on a sort of practice basis or, or an HMO basis to try and assess the quality of care according to sort of agreed upon guidelines. Well, great. And, you know, what I think is part of the wisdom in those particular uh, measures you've selected is they do check measures that are very uh, non-controversial. And when, when you pick a Z-score of, of minus 2.5, uh, that really is a great way to look at it in that pretty much everybody under that should at least be offered some sort of therapy and, and therefore makes that measure certainly much more valid and I think much less uh, apt to be discussed or debated and things like that. So I think that's very, very helpful. Well, I think that, yeah, I think that it's, I've, uh, you know, in, in my discussions with, you know, people in clinical practice, it's nice to kind of get, rather than focusing on the marginal areas where people might disagree, but to focus on the areas of which there is agreement and there are large areas where there is pretty much universal agreement on uh, therapeutic approaches to osteoporosis. Great. And then one, one last question before we go back to the queue of, of callers is, you know, any tips on how we keep, uh, you know, how we keep patients interested in continuing therapy. It's obviously an expensive drug. It's, it's one more pill for most of our patients, yet clearly part of how I think we can deliver high-quality medicine is to help our patients understand the importance of continuing therapy and make the decisions to, to continue on. Any insights into that whole realm and, and how we can play our hand the best to make sure that happens? Well, of course, as in any any type of therapy, um, whereas, you know, you're treating an asymptomatic disease in general, um, 
compliance and long-term adherence is, is definitely a challenge. Um, I'm not an expert in this area, but I would think certainly that at the forefront would be patient education, that educating the patients um, as to the importance of the disease, the consequences of the disease um, would, be, would be very important. And there, from a practice point of view, you know, providing that education, whether that's on a one-to-one -one basis or on some kind of group basis, whether that's a website or a newsletter, um, could, be, could be important in terms of, of establishing sort of a more of a motivation from the patient point of view. Great. Well, and the other thing I would add to that is, you know, some of the self-management literature really talks about the importance of periodically reaching out and, and touching patients to reinforce the importance of this. Again, in an asymptomatic condition, um, it's easier, it's easy for the, the focus on that particular treatment to wane over time. And so periodic outreach and just really re-educating patients, I think, is another important piece. Right. Now, one, one of the areas that, that some clinicians believe that, that the value of doing a repeat bone density measurement with someone on therapy, and in general it's recommended to do two years out after starting, um, that it, it, it's sort of a patient education tool. Um, right. So that, that may play some role in kind of, again, bringing the disease more to the forefront of the patient's thoughts. So that, that, may, be, uh, that may be a tool that will that'll help with some patients to increase adherence. Yeah, that's a great point because it not only reinforces the importance of the condition, but it really gives people a number to look at. And, and some patients certainly find it much easier to think about their status in terms of a number or a measurement. So that, that's a great point. Right, and then, then the bone density scans also kind of have a nice little picture. So if they, you know, a patient can see a little picture of their hip bone or their spine, and that, that's kind of a nice visual, kind of a visual clue about the disease as well. Uh, great point. Great point. Well, thank you for that. Uh, let me check in again and see if there are any uh, questions in the queue at this time. There is a question from Barry Burschow with Airview Health Services. Barry, please go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, I'm uh, a male, uh, 59, with osteoporosis, currently uh, on these medications with good uh, results. It's very, very difficult to find anything in the literature on recommendations for males. Uh, including things like we've been discussing, length of treatment, drug holidays, DEXA frequency follow-ups, other concerns. Do you have any comments that might be different from your uh, research or your understanding of other research that we could direct towards myself and other male patients with this condition? Uh, yeah, that's a great question, Dr. Burschow. Go ahead. Please, yeah, yeah, it's a good question, really good question, and, um, you know, it's, I can tell you what there is, and um, what there is, there was a study done of, of alendronate in men um, done for two years showing that the bone density gains were, were almost identical in men with osteoporosis as they were in women. The bone marker results were the same. And there was, well, what, this was not a fracture trial. There was a suggestion of a decrease in fractures in men, as you would see in women. So, you know, in terms of initiating therapy, I think, again, the results are supportive that bisphosphonates are similarly effective in men as they would be in women. Um, in terms of continuing the long term, um, as far as I know, there, there really isn't a literature on this at all. Um, but again, there, there would be no reason to believe that the results in women wouldn't be applicable to men. And in the absence of any other evidence, I would sort of I would treat men in the same way in terms of drug holidays, duration of therapy, as I, as I would women. Thank you. 
Any yeah. follow-up questions, Dr. Bershaw? No, thank you very much. That's helpful. Thank Great. You. Thank you. Any other questions at this time? There are no more in the queue. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. Well, I want to go ahead and uh, wrap it up. I, I really uh, think it's been a wonderful discussion. Uh, and again, I want to compliment you and your colleagues on, on the excellent work that you did uh, to really address this question of what we do with our patients um, as they live longer and, and time goes by. So, Dr. Black, I want to invite you to offer us any closing thoughts or, or comments at this time. Um, no, no, not in particular. I'd just like to, again, thank JAMA and IHI for the opportunity to discuss this with, uh, you know, such a, a geographically diverse set of uh, listeners and participants. Well, great. And again, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Dennis Black again for your participation in the call today and for uh, really leading such an enlightening discussion. As a reminder, um, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion uh, takes place on February 21st. Our featured guest at that time will be Dr. David Gantz discussing his article, The Rational Clinical Exam, uh, Will My Patient Fall? Uh, Author in the Room is sponsored jointly by the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for being part of Author in the Room, and have a good day.